Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. According to the CDC, by the end of September 2021, nearly 700,000 people died from COVID-19 in the United States. Dr. Jasper Singh and Dr. Ryan Maves are here to speak with us about managing resources when faced with shortages of medications, equipment, staffing, and hospital beds. Well, welcome everybody. I'm Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary and critical care and sleep medicine physician in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm the medical director of critical care at Atrium Health, and I'm here with Consultant 360, talking today with Dr. Ryan Mays. Ryan, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jaspal. It's a real pleasure to, uh, to be here with you today. So our topic today is about basically this new COVID crisis, and we might say the next how many surges we've had now in this country. And Ryan, you have a unique perspective on this. I don't know if you can introduce yourself, and I'm sure the audience would love to hear about your perspective and your background. Oh, well, well thank you very much. So I'm an infectious disease and critical care physician. I'm just down the road from you in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, where I'm faculty in the sections of infectious diseases and in the sections of critical care. I actually very recently retired after a 22-year career in the U.S. Navy, where I was clinically an ID physician and an intensivist and also served as a program director of the Navy's ID fellowship in San Diego and site director for our research group. Within the DOD, there's a program called the Infectious Diseases Clinical Research Program, currently uh, led by Dr. Kim Burgess out of the Uniform Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. And this conducts multi-center clinical trials and research at large military medical centers, so San Diego, Walter Reed, San Antonio, and the like, Madigan up in the Northwest. And what we've spent, obviously, within IDCRP and now ongoing here at Wake Forest, our time on has obviously been largely COVID-related. So during my last couple of years in the military, I was able to work with NIH on the adaptive COVID treatment trials, the ACT, the studies looking at remdesivir, baricitinib, and other therapies for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And then we also have a very large prospective cohort study, over 3,000 participants and growing, of patients within the military health system with COVID-19 who voluntarily enroll in this trial. And we've been following them prospectively over the course of their illness and recovery to better understand both epidemiologic, molecular, immunologic, and other clinical mechanisms underlying severity of disease. And we've started to get out some great publications from Epic and I'm very excited to, to see how that protocol goes on. Although I do remember when we were writing it, actually Epic began its EPICC with two Cs, not to be confused with the EMR. And I remember when we were writing the protocol, I made the comment that I've never spent so much time on a study that I hoped to never enroll anybody in uh, <laughs> because we began working on it in uh, January of 2020. Aside from that, though, I... Uh, fell into kind of disaster medicine as an academic interest relatively shortly after finishing my critical care fellowship. It's, uh, I think, a fairly common area of interest for military intensivists to go into. And I've had the good or bad fortune, depending on your point of view, to be involved in a number of disasters of various scales and disease outbreaks during the course of my career. I served in Afghanistan at, uh, in Kandahar at the NATO Combat Hospital for most of 2012, where I was the director of medical services. And then uh, actually right after my ID fellowship, I lived in Peru for three years and doing research down there. And one of the first things that happened shortly after I arrived was an 8.0 earthquake with the epicenter in the city that I was currently in. Uh, so was involved both in my own personal disaster of evacuating from the earthquake and then later on uh, had the chance to 
our team had the chance to support the Peruvian government's uh, recovery efforts. And so from there, I started working on disaster-related things through the American College of Chess Physicians and the Society of Critical Care Medicine, writing about pandemic planning and such with a number of great mentors, James Lawler and John Lowe at University of Nebraska, for example, among many others. And then the pandemic came. And all of a sudden, the work that had been largely theoretical for much of my career became very, very real. Quite a background. So thank you for sharing that. So now we're knee deep in this. And my <laughs> last year and a half has been crazy, as like yours has, as I'm sure everybody else's has. And so oh, yeah. And um, as we're knee deep in this, you know, we're in the midst of this sort of, I don't I'll call it a third wave. You can divide, we can we can argue about what number this is of the wave of, of patients that we're having. What's different now? We've had issues before. So early on, you know, we I'm just gonna summarize, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. We were kind of, you know, fine by the seat of our pants kind of making things as we go along, all kinds of stuff, but we kind of slowed society down in a lot of ways, masking, mandates, social distancing, all the things. And, you know, and that helped us buy a little time, it seemed like for a lot of the country, but now things are different. Um, It seems like we're in a different, in a different surge. And I was wondering with all the shortages and on all the things that you're seeing, what lessons are you, what are you seeing on your side? And what do you think we, we should be focusing in on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful question, and, and certainly one I was hopeful earlier this year that we would never have to ask. With the first wave of vaccinations, we had a decline in the last big surge, and I thought we were all hopeful that maybe all of this would be behind us. I chair the American College of Chess Physicians COVID Task Force, and we were actually talking about maybe winding down our operations and shifting our focus elsewhere. Sadly, now we are gainfully employed once again. I think what's different about this, and I I know many people have said this before me and much smarter and more eloquent people than me, but this is, you know, to a large extent, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, as we all know. That leads us to, I think, some interesting challenges. We've seen this polarization in our society that has put the unvaccinated and the vaccinated at odds in a way that I think is, is unique in modern memory. And that has led to a challenge, I think, at the bedside for a lot of us about how we how we approach these patients. I like to think that the overwhelming majority of us set that aside, just as we set aside the care of a lung cancer patient who still smokes. But at the same time, lung cancer is not a communicable disease. And that patient's decision to continue with the habit does not, setting aside issues of secondhand smoke, does not directly impact society as a whole. And I think one of the challenges a lot of us at the bedside, and this will come back to surge planning indirectly, have is this, the challenges in maintaining our empathy. And I think that's gotten harder as time has gone on. I think we're doing it. I think we're succeeding in doing so. But it does make it hard. Early on, there was sort of the heroic phase of the pandemic, right? When, you know, cities would stop at a certain time of day to applaud for healthcare workers. That time has passed. Those those periods of uh, you know us being called heroes that that came and went, and and I will say as a longtime member of the military, it's a, a feeling I've experienced before. Now, how does this affect our our response? I think one part of it is that early in the pandemic, the hardest hit areas tended to be more geographically distinct: New York, the Northwest, later on other large metro areas, but they're still left a pool of staff who could come and provide support to hard hit facilities. Travelers could go, to, could go to New York to back up. But when right now what we have and we have had is a disaster that's affecting all of the country, not uniformly. Obviously, uh, low, states with low rates of vaccination have uh, you know, Texas, Florida, Mississippi, 
Uh, I think I read in the paper today that if Mississippi were its own country, its per capita mortality from COVID would be second only to Peru. Yes, I heard the same thing. This challenge means that there isn't this pool of people to pull from to augment our staffing. And that affects a lot of how we model our surge responses in response to pandemics, where if you read some of our documents that our group within the Task Force for Mass Critical Care uh, led by uh, Dr. Jeff Dichter, Dr. Asha Devereaux, Dr. Vikram Mukherjee at NYU, and I, myself in a smaller role, uh, for which I'm very grateful. It assumes that there is a pool of people to draw from. You know, for example, using medical and surgical nurses to augment ICU staffing, to pull from anesthesiology, for example, to provide procedural support in the ICU. Early on in the pandemic, that was possible. Hospitals had largely shut down elective surgeries. We could ask people from other regions to provide support. And people, I think, weren't as tired. They were more, they still had that reserve of extra energy to provide to help beef up staffing in a way. And I don't feel like that's possible anymore, at least not in the same way. Uh, right now, our, a lot of our shortages are not so much shortages of physical beds, but of staff to make those beds operational. There isn't an untapped pool of ICU nurses or of med surge nurses to augment our capacity in the same way as there was before. And hospitals are understandably reluctant to shut down a lot of elective procedures because for one reason, a lot of those elective procedures are not that elective. Uh, delayed, the delayed impact of cancer care, for example, of cancer surgeries, of cardiovascular surgeries has a mortality benefit that cannot be, has a mortality risk, I'm sorry, that cannot be ignored. And there is a financial need to keep hospitals solvent, and they do need to be able to perform procedures so that we can care for others. Uh, and lastly, I worry that people are just getting tired. I worry that, that our colleagues, both in medicine and in nursing and in respiratory therapy and pharmacy and others, are, are starting to feel more worn down, that the burnout threat that haunted critical care for a long time has become much more acute with this last wave, especially because I think a lot of us saw the end in sight. So I'm gonna summarize, so you put a lot there. So what's different, what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, the politicization or polarization of, of mm -hmm. this, this aspect of the, of the pandemic, I think things have changed with all the real staunch aspects of ivermectin and other therapies that people are really sort of d digging deep on as uh, versus vaccination and things that we need to have, for example. We're going to come back to empathy a little bit because I think it ties into burnout. Um, yeah. But then the idea of sort of the how the, the pandemic spreading regional and national, it's no longer just one or two states. It's now it's everywhere in some states, some regions, extraordinarily hard hit, including the southeast. Yeah. The ability to augment capacity, like you said, is not there for a variety of reasons, whether that be rooms, whether that be operation of the hospital, whether that be help from other disciplines, that, that's not available to us anymore. And I want to lump in the other part, which is the, the fatigue, which is coming out in a lot of different ways, including some real concerns about empathy, compassion, all those yeah. aspects. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a great summary. Obviously, no great solutions for a lot of those are very complex issues. But there's one, one logistic one that you didn't mention, which I've been sort of struggling with a lot, which is we're back to where we were about shortages of medications, yeah, beds, staffing in a way that we don't, I don't think we saw early on the pandemic, at least not where I'm at. I don't know if you can comment on that. 
Um, I, I, I think that's a function of geography to, to some extent. I think if you talk to our friends who were in, you know, in Seattle early on, for example, or in New York, they very acutely suffered from that. And I think to some extent, uh, you and I were spared the worst of that. Uh, I was practicing in San Diego during earlier surges. But even then, we saw variability there within the San Diego County, where, you know, at the Naval Hospital, we were somewhat spared the worst, although we got busy. Whereas a, a hospital where I had the good luck to, to moonlight, uh, Scripps Mercy Chula Vista, is one that, it's a small community hospital uh, with a family medicine and internal medicine residency program. And it is the closest hospital to the Mexican border in San Diego County. So serving a very large Latino population, very large Filipino population as well. And, and we had, we had, you know, ventilated patients spilling out into the hallway. So those space considerations became very acute. And then just even with a very robust load leveling system in San Diego County, where the Scripps system and other hospitals would actively try to balance where patients were, were placed. So, so I, I think that problem has existed before. I suspect that you and I are just confronting it anew. You know, early on, the big fear was ventilator shortages, right? And the, uh, the previous administration used the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of ventilators. And what we saw was only a proportion of those are what you and I would consider full service ventilators. A lot of those would not be adequate for the care of a patient with ARDS. Now, some of them, that's not to say these were useless devices. You know, we still have to provide ventilation for, say, neurosurgical patients with normal lungs. Some of the, that, that would fill a need that we could then not have to utilize a full-service ventilator for that patient. So, so that kind of thing was a mixed blessing. Medication shortages have been a particular challenge, but I wonder, and this is a thing I wrestle with a bit, when I think about our responses to different medication shortages, just using that as an example, how many of these changes that we are forced to confront? I mean, I, I think, for example, when you're talking about medication shortages, uh, tried to start someone on, on a ketamine infusion the other day, and we were able to do so. Our pharmacy was, was wonderful at backing us up in that, but it took some doing. How many of these medication shortages have been shortages of fentanyl, hydromorphone, et cetera? How have we responded to these? Well, I think one way we've responded is with increased use of enteral sedation in mechanically ventilated patients, and I think largely successfully. Um, it doesn't work in every patient. It doesn't work in patients requiring neuromuscular blockade, for example, or the like, or people who are on you know, 30 of levofed, but it works in a lot of patients. And what I wonder is when, when the dust is settled, right, because all pandemics end eventually, we will not be doing this forever, is when we look back, what which of these changes that we've adapted in response to shortages, in, res in response to these unique pressures, will turn out to be improvements in care? Like, I, I hope, I hope that I don't backslide and go back to using continuous infusions of drugs when I could get away with, you know, PRN, oxycodone through Adopoff, right? And I, I, so I sincerely wonder about some of these mitigation strategies as genuine improvements, and I hope and a number of them turn out to be. Another good example is actually the more aggressive proning of patients with ARDS. Yeah. Where we, uh, you know, I, I don't know what your practice out here was. Uh, back in San Diego a few years ago, you basically had to go and rent the giant rotoproner erector set device for, you know, a billion dollars a day. And that mm -hmm. was the only way you ever proned anyone. And that was a barrier to proning. Now we just prone people in bed. I think that leads to improvements in care down the road. So a lot of these medication shortages, they existed but they were more geographically limited. And, and I'm hopeful that this increased focus on both alternatives, because it's, it's not just the drug, it's the capability, right? Like 
if I have access to VEC, yeah, cisatricurium is easier to use, but vecuronium will work fine. Right. As long as we can preserve capabilities and people are not excessively rigid in the method by which they provide a certain element of care, I think we can get by reasonably well. And then again, a, a, a very, what's the best word I'm looking for here? Like flexible. Uh, flexible? Flex, flexible is a good word. The word I'm looking for is, is a, a view with, with careful scrutiny into which of our practices that we do routinely in terms of medication usage, do we just do out of habit? And are those habits something that need to be changed? Makes sense. So systematic, maybe perhaps look at, look at our systematic approaches and potentially sort of look, really look critically at what, exactly. needs, what, needs, to be, what needs to happen. And if, it, if we can be flexible with certain aspects of whether it be drug delivery or any shortage, any ventilator usage, that mm-hmm. probably we've learned a lot in the last year and a half. So maybe we can start applying that, especially if it affects our region. Exactly. That's, that's helpful. Um, so some parts of the country, um, famously, like in Idaho, invoke mm-hmm. this crisis standards of care, which is something you've been very familiar with with your task force work and such. And I was hoping one of those things, like I think I spent a lot of time last year working on some of that lo- with a local committee. And I was hoping to God, dear God, please don't let mm-hmm. us use this. Right, right. And, but it's happening now. It, and, it is. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and sort of where is this going? Well, I, I will tell you, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is not the first time this has been done, right? Certainly formal implementation. So crisis standards of care, uh, just as, as a brief introduction, is the idea that in times of extreme shortages of the kind of the, the pillars of disaster response, staff, space, and stuff, in times of shortages that we need to adapt our standards of care in response to crisis. And there's a, a, a continuum of responses to an emergency, conventional to contingency, to crisis. And the goal of a lot of this surge planning, this kind of augmentation of staff, this using non-traditional areas for the provision of critical care like PACUs or the emergency department, these sorts of contingency steps, the point of them is to try to prevent entering into crisis standards of care. And part of the idea, and I think the thing where a lot of the focus on crisis standards of care comes in is in terms of limitations of care. To, To put it kind of most baldly, you have three vents left and you have five patients. Who gets the vent? And a lot of the attention goes around this idea of critical care triage, not our usual triage where we see a patient in the emergency department and we assess if they can go to the ward or to the intermediate care or to the unit, but true triage as in the withholding of care that would normally be routine. So a few elements of that are one, how do we identify the patients most likely to benefit from critical care resources? And then we focus those resources on those patients. So perhaps if you have a person who has a widely metastatic malignancy and an estimated survival of a month, and then you have another person who is a young woman of childbearing age, who is also four months pregnant, uh, we would, that's sort of an extreme example, but we would allocate the one remaining ventilator to the younger person with the higher survival. This is incredibly hard. And I, I feel fortunate that that is not a decision I've had to personally make at the bedside, although I've written about it quite a bit. One of the challenges uh, in this is that a lot of the early crisis standard of care models proposed used physiologic scoring systems as a rating scale to say, like, if you have a SOFA score above 11, for example, you're un- we, we believe you are unlikely to survive and we would not offer that person mechanical ventilation. 
The problem is that the data, I would say, does not really support that as a strategy. Uh, there is a very nice review done using uh, state-level data in the state of Victoria in Australia that looked and said, hey, if we used this kind of SOFA score-based system, this was published in Chest a little while ago, right. how would that help with available resources in our state? And the answer was not very much. Because I think in part, it's that COVID is different, right? COVID is different. That initial baseline physiologic scoring score is not as predictive of survival as we think. That a person who comes in with a certain certain SOFA score with COVID may be more or less likely to survive than a comparable patient with, say, gram-negative sepsis. I think we all see that. The, the COVID is different. It behaves it differently. It behaves, you know, there's a delay sometimes. Yeah. Like patients that are doing well for like a few days, and then all of a sudden, things change and, yeah. or vice versa. They look terrible for a few days and they look they yeah. turn around quickly and it's hard to predict. So yeah. and, I can see that happening. Yeah. And the end effect of it is that these physiologic scoring systems aren't predicting the thing we're trying to do. They both miss patients <clears throat> who may have a very high risk of death. And they also exclude patients from supportive care who actually may have a pretty good prognosis, all things considered. And, and so trying to figure out how to select patients under, again, this is you know, under the most horrible of circumstances, a decision that I think none of us ever want to have to make right. is what are the real features that actually predict mortality? Uh, they may be age, they may be you know, comorbidity indices, something like the Charleston comorbidity index. It may be simple frailty. There's a large evidence base suggesting that frailty is the principal, not the principal, but certainly one of the strongest predictors of survival in general critical care populations. And this has been seen, uh, or at least described in, in COVID. There's some series out of the UK that have looked at that specifically. But the flip side of all of this is also how do we not amplify inequities in our society by using these sorts of scoring systems? Because often, for example, I, took, I gave the example of comorbidity indices. Well, you know, comorbidity indices are often much higher in populations of color, uh, you know, among black people who have per population a much higher incidence, not a much higher, they have a higher incidence of hypertension, say, than other racial and ethnic groups within the United States, or groups that have had difficulties accessing care in the past. And so cancer screenings may be deferred or not performed, and then they present with an advanced malignancy. And then we say, well, now you can't have a ventilator. Are we just perpetuating a prior injustice by using a comorbidity index as a tool for ventilator allocation during the pandemic? Because these allocation rules wouldn't apply only to people with COVID, right? They would apply to all people requiring critical care services. Right, right. No, and so- and so that's kind of the challenge. And, and some groups, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Doug White at Pitt, for example, have proposed using something called an area deprivation index, which is a tool to account for these sorts of inequities as a way to kind of even the playing field for people. But obviously, this is a very fraught discussion. And I think as a society, we're still wrestling with how would we actually do this? So when you take the example, it's Northern Idaho, kind of the panhandle of Idaho between Washington and Montana, who is entering into crisis standards of care. And the challenge in Idaho, or one of the challenges is that it is a largely rural state. You know, it has one metropolitan center of any real size, which is Boise. There is one trauma center, one level one trauma center, and that's actually in Seattle that cares for it. And so a lot of complex care, particularly in Northern Idaho, has to be diverted in normal times to Spokane or to Seattle, potentially. Right. Some care can go to Boise. Southern Idaho can rely on Salt Lake to some extent. But so you have a limited critical care capacity in normal times. 
and your typical referral centers, Spokane, Seattle, are equally overburdened. Seattle was above its state ICU capacity before the Delta surge hit. And so the solutions for this have been very difficult. Uh, Dr. Steve Mitchell at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle is one of the one of Washington State's real leaders in this in figuring out how to coordinate how to how to coordinate ICU care and ICU movement and hospital movement for patients in an overburdened system to provide some manner of load leveling so that you can at least even out the burden in a way that provides optimum care and try to again prevent this transition into crisis standards of care. I, I would say this, you know, Idaho, Northern Idaho declared crisis standards. I think they're unique in that they're the first ones to say it out loud. Yeah. I, I personally have not been in this position to make this decision, but I have friends and I suspect you may as well, right. who have had to make that decision previously as well, the decision to remove someone from a ventilator in times of, of overwhelming crisis. And, right. and I think that Northern Idaho saying it out loud sheds some casts needed attention on, on this problem that we're facing, because obviously it doesn't just affect COVID patients. It, uh, we all probably read in the paper about the gentleman who died of a, died of an MI after trying to find 40 hospitals right. to be transferred to for, right. for care. We don't want to see that happen too often here. No, exactly. Exactly. So that's really the, the focus on these crisis standards. But I think what's worth saying is that crisis standards of care are still standards, right? It is not a free for all. These decisions for say ventilator allocation should not be made by clinicians at the bedside. They need to be done by independent teams who are removed from direct patient care so that the clinician can focus on advocating and caring for their individual patients as best they can. And I hope to potentially remove some of the moral burden to the greatest extent possible from the individual, the individual at the bedside. The other thing is that the decision to transition into formal crisis standards of care is not the decision of an individual hospital. It is a decision of a government. Uh, that could be a county government, a state government, the federal government conceivably. And so while we as institutions need to prepare these plans, they first of all need to be done transparently. We can't do this in secret. We have to have community involvement. There are things that our, our neighbors in the community will think of in terms of justice, of equity that may not occur to us on the first pass. And they need to be done in, in collaboration with civic authorities. The state of Washington, among others, where it was sued early in the pandemic for their crisis standards of care plan under the notion that they were violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, because they would potentially have disproportionately affected people, say, living with ALS with home ventilators, just as an example. I right. So it sounds like what you're describing is essentially that the crisis standards of care, I think it's a lot of press and a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's probably already happening in some shape or form because resources are limited. We do it in transplantation work, for example, all the time. Absolutely. The idea of that how to do it is important to make sure that you do it with collaboration and through a separate body of work, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of precedence for this. Some of the things that are proposed currently may or may need to be also be looked at critically because they may not be applied. Things like SOPA scoring or simple scoring allocation system may have some undue consequences. So we're going to be very critical and, and deliberate how we roll this out, right. especially publicly announced. But what you're saying also gives me hope that basically this is only a, it's a crisis standard, but it's still a standard. It is. And that actually, basically, that there's a lot of thought and a lot of good people behind this trying to work through this and thinking about things <laughs> like social justice all those aspects that a lot of us may not find intuitively very easy. Yeah, ab absolutely. And although, and I, and I think this will resonate with you, 
you know, we all know critical care is a concept, not a location. Um, and, and the ventilator is not the center of the ICU. We are the center of the ICU. Our patients, our nurses, ourselves, the respiratory therapists, it's the team that makes it work. And even those patients who under a crisis standard of care model are, for example, not allocated a ventilator. That doesn't mean we can't care for them. That doesn't mean that we can't provide the best available care, meaning perhaps that would be high flow nasal cannula, oxygenation, or non-invasive. Perhaps it would just be good, aggressive palliative care, but we still have that duty to care for all of those patients, even if there are certain resources that simply aren't available during that crisis. I think that's well said. Well, Dr. Mays, we're out of time, but I want to say, want to say thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. We covered a lot of ground related to this current surge of the pandemic. We greatly appreciate your expertise. For there are our listeners, there's a couple of references in the on the website. Feel free to peruse those as well. And Dr. Mays, I just want to thank you on behalf of Consultant 360 for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again. Take care. Take care.